Tonight, uh, you have gathered, uh, we're on number three, which is Sodom and Gomorrah. These are fairly, um, uh, fairly uh, chronological, so they kind of follow from one another. So I'm trying where I can to connect them up so that you can get a sense of how they uh, do actually uh, connect. Okay, so Sodom and Gomorrah then. I, I picked that picture because it, it, I thought it was a good one because it, we don't, obviously we don't see images of Sodom and Gomorrah. Nobody will remember what it looked like, but from what I'm going to share tonight, it do, they do seem to have been quite substantial cities, uh, premier cities in Canaan uh, in the Jordan Valley. And, and I thought that looked like a fairly significant city with uh, turrets and castles and all sorts of things. I'm not sure if that lady is running away um, or coming in or, <laughs> or whether it's Lot's wife who only got halfway out and turned around. I'm not absolutely sure. But anyway, Sodom and Gomorrah. And the question that we're going to ask is, is there evidence uh, of a catastrophe befalling Sodom and Gomorrah? That, again, is my main preoccupation. I'll try drawing other things as well, but, but that simple factual thing, did this actually happen? You may think that's an unnecessary question to ask, but I mean there are loads of biblical scholars and all sorts of things that have done their investigations, archaeologists say, well we can't find it, it isn't there, and it's probably a myth and a legend, and you know, uh, so Unbelief has been very characteristic of, of the modern 20th century. Most experts that you will hear will probably disagree with what I'm saying, but don't worry, I'm right, okay? <laughs> okay, uh, so we're going to read from Genesis chapter 19 and verse 1, and uh, I'll take you through those, uh, the, the, those passages. Uh, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening... And Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. You remember Lot was Abraham's nephew and they'd gone their separate ways and uh, Abraham had given Lot the choice of where he wanted to live and he chose the cities of the plain down there in the Jordan Valley. It was a lush place and he chose well in one sense, although it didn't work out so well in the end. Uh, when he saw them, he got up to meet them and he bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, he obviously knew they were significant people. Uh, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. Uh, no, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and they entered his house and he prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. And before they'd gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom Obviously, the word had gone round. Both young and old surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came into you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. You have to say, there's a pretty rampant atmosphere running in Sodom and Gomorrah at this time. That's not a good thing to do with angels. And Lot went, out, went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him to protect the angels that were inside. And he said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. And this, this is a bit of, a, this is a, bit of a, a mind twister. He said, look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. I mean, what's that about? 
I mean, there's a bit of an indication, we'll look at it a bit later on, that there is, a, there is, a, there is a, an all-round corruption that is running through the city, and Lot is not being immune to that. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. Pretty serious, isn't it, really? So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters, and he said, so they were obviously heterosexual. So, you know what I mean, although it's, it's a pretty majority position, it seems to be very, you know, quite a lot of homosexuality running. It's, sort of, it's not universal. These guys weren't, as far as I know. Um, but his sons-in-law thought that he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters, and they led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favour in your eyes and have shown me great kindness in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to. And it is small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? And then my life will be spared. And he said to him, very well, I will grant this request too, and I will not overthrow the town that you speak of. But flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. How interesting. That is why the town was called Zoar, because that means small. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land, and then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Well, so reads the record. I mean, is that, is that a myth? Did that really happen? That's the question that we're going to ask. So there's, that, that's probably the crucial kind of quote of the whole passage, the Lord burning, hurling down, burning sulfur. Okay. Um, we're going to look at five particular points on this tonight. First of all, we're going to look at the spread of civilization. I'm going to, this is where I'm going to try and link it in to what we've already done before with Noah's Ark and the Tower of Babel. You remember the sort of general rough 
sequence of Noah's Ark about 2,300 on a biblical chronology, Tower of Babel about 2,150, about 150 years later. So Abraham would have been around about 2,000. So we're talking, we're 300 years after the flood, something like that. Uh, so we're going to look at the spread of civilization. We're going to look at the geography of the Jordan. I, I hope it's not too geographic, but, we're, but I mean, it is a fascinating area, actually, to look at. Thirdly, we're going to look at the remains of the cities. They do believe that they found them. And uh, so I'll be, sort of, I'll be sharing that. Uh, fourthly, we're going to look at the mercy of God. You know, I mean, it seems pretty tough. So we're going to spend a moment. I mean, it says in the, in the middle of that passage, but God was merciful to them. Even when God is moving in judgment, he is always looking to save people, to rescue them, to get them out of it. If only we will. Of course, we've got such a track record of being stubborn and rebellious and no, I'm not going to, and so on. But we're going to look at the mercy of God. And then fifthly, we're going to look at the lessons that come out of Sodom. And there are actually quite a few that are particularly appropriate for our time. It's probably, this is probably not the best time to speak on a subject like Sodom and Gomorrah, I have to say. Or maybe it is the best time, but it's certainly not the easiest time for a preacher. The kind of atmosphere that we now have in our society globally. Okay, so the spread of civilization, that's a kind of rough map. And uh, if, you, um, if you look at that map, you'll see three major centers of population, all where the major river systems were, um, in that, e that Middle Eastern uh, area. That is, far, that is pretty much agreed, I think, even by secular archaeology. That, that is the cradle of civilization. That's, that's really where it all began. And the interesting thing is that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and you can trace them in all of those areas. So they obviously, after Babel, they started to scatter out. The ark was sort of around about there, where we've marked it on the map. And you'll remember last week we were talking about Nimrod and Babel and Babylon, the earliest empire. It looks as if Nimrod moved down the Mesopotamian River to a more, you know, as, as it was drying out, the waters were going down. You could sort of move, you know, it was getting less muddy. And it looks as if Nimrod moved down there because Babylon then is centered much more in the south of Mesopotamia. In the north, uh, there's uh, the Assyrians who were named after another one of uh, uh, Noah's sons, one of Shem's sons, Asher. And interestingly, the god of the Assyrians was called Asher, which we've said in other times. Lots of these father figures, in the, they were deified. They were turned into god figures. And so Asher is one of them. Um, and uh, then down in the, uh, and he, but he was of Shem. Also, you got Ham's children moving down the Jordan River and down towards Egypt, so Mizraim. Um, was the, uh, the father of the, uh, the Egyptians. Um, and then you've got Japheth, the, the, the Japhethites, it looks like they spread from in two directions. So one direction went up into Europe, um, Greece and, you know, Turkey and, and uh, way up into Europe and Northern and Russia and everything else. And the other, the other one went over into the east and formed the other branch of the family. So the Japhethites formed into two halves. And it's interesting that the, the, the major lead god uh, for the Japhethites was, was Yapati, came, became changed to Jupiter. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty fair likelihood. Um, and, the, and the Hindus, their chief god was called Prayapati. 
uh, which again is quite interesting, isn't it? So the same name had travelled through, even though the language structures were, were quite different. So it indicates there was a, a real connection there. Uh, the Jordan River is that blue line down there. You see that? That, that is where uh, the, the, the tribe of Canaan, one of, another one of Ham's sons, settled. Um, and it's thought that there were a number of the tribes uh, in in that in the Canaan among the Canaanites mingled in that were giant peoples. So we were talking about this earlier. I talked it with Kip. Um, people said, "Well, didn't the giants all get killed in the flood?" Well, no, they didn't. A, a part of the line, it seems, went through the flood, and we'll look at that in a moment. So what what it says in Numbers 13 is way after this time. All the people we saw there were of great size. This is the children of Israel when they, when God was going to take them back into the land to reclaim it. Uh, we saw the Nephilim there and we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. So they were under no illusion. Of course, that was when they turned back and refused to go in and God judged the children of Israel because they wouldn't go in. So it looks like a number of the tribes, the Amorites and some of the different tribes, were intermingled with giants. And where did they come from? Well, almost certainly there was a, a pre-flood bloodline that somehow travelled through. Uh, in, in Genesis 6-4, where it talks about the giants in the earth in those days, it also says, in those days and hereafter. So they were still around after the flood. Uh, it's thought they may well have come through the, the line of Ham, through his wife, very possibly. There are legends and myths about the wife of Ham. I, can't, I won't repeat it because I'm not absolutely 100% certain. But it may well be through that that it came. And you remember that Canaan uh, received God's judgment upon him and it, so it could well be that Canaan, who was one of the sons of Ham and his wife, carried that line with him. I don't know. I suspect that it was mingled. It was mingled in with the line, the bloodlines of the people. So most probably through Canaan. And you get specific references to Og, the king of Bashan, um, who was just over the Jordan at that time, who had a 14-foot bed that was six foot wide. So he was a big bloke. And of course, you remember Goliath, who was probably part of the same, the, the sons of Anak, uh, that, that were part of the line. I mean, Anak actually was a son of Arba, and you still, you've got an Israeli town called Kiriath Arba that's named after Arba. So very interesting. Well, I find it interesting how these names have transmitted down. So uh, Goliath, of course, by the time of Goliath, it, it looks as if the giant peoples were diminishing. There were only, a, I think Goliath had a couple of brothers, and that was sort of it. And they were the, the, the Philistines adopted them and took them in and made them their, their champions and their heroes, obviously, if you've got a big guy like that. But, but Goliath was only nine foot tall, according to the Bible. But you can trace a specific line. So this is not, you know, it's not exaggeration. It's not imaginary. It undoubtedly came right through the line from before the flood originally. Now, here's a very interesting thing that I came across, that, that when they uh, started to settle in the earth, uh, one ancient document says that Noah actually divided the land among them. And, uh, I mean, really, Mesopotamia should have been given to the children of Shem. But Ham nicked it and Nimrod and that kind of thing. And so there was a conflict there. And Mesopotamia has been a hotbed of conflict ever since. Still is. You know, it's Iraq. You know, there's almost like there's a spiritual influence over Mesopotamia and Babylon of conflict from the, from the consequences of that. But interestingly, he set aside the land that we now call Canaan for the people of Israel, for Abraham and for the children that he was going to plant there because he had a plan for that. And Canaan usurped the Jordan Valley because he liked it. Uh, 
So on his way down to Egypt, he, this, is, this is what this ancient document says. I thought, that's interesting, isn't it? So there's really, you f I find it quite interestingly, there's quite deep-rooted rebellion towards God from really early on. You know, uh, even after the flood, there is enough rebellion in the house of Noah to start the whole jolly process off again. And Canaan was known, it was almost legendary for its wickedness, for its violence and sexual um, violence and, you know, and uh, per permissiveness, that's an understatement of the word really. Uh, so they were occupying, that was the land of Canaan that we're talking about tonight and Sodom and Gomorrah were a part of that. What, else, what about, the, secondly, the, I'm going to run through these now quickly. Uh, the Jordan is the deepest, uh, and the Dead Sea in particular, is the deepest place on earth. Uh, the Dead Sea is 400 metres below sea level. That's about 1,200 feet. Um, it's like a great big hole in, in the earth, uh, which gives it some very interesting characteristics. The whole valley has apparently sunk down. Now, I don't know, I say the whole valley, I don't know how much of the valley... Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if it's not the whole valley has sunk down. I was looking at some geology books on the, on the Dead Sea area and they called it a pull-apart basin. doesn't seem exactly a technical term, but that's what they called it uh, in, the, in the, the thing that I was looking up. And it looks as though it's the land split apart and the basin fell down uh, in the thing and slipped. So it wasn't originally as deep as it is now. To now, it is very deep. And of course, the consequence of it going to that depth below sea level was that there was no outlet for the, dead, for the Jordan River. The Jordan River just keeps going down there, going down there, going down there. It evaporates and evaporates. So all the accumulated salts of, uh, of several thousands of years have gradually built up, built up and so on in the Dead Sea. So it makes it very interesting. I have been there. I have floated in the Dead Sea. It's very weird trying to swim in it. Uh, you, you get, you, you can't, your feet kind of rise up without trying, you know, without, and, and you can't get back down again. You know, you, you, keep, you keep swimming. You can't, uh, you can't get your legs down because you're not heavy enough because the water is too thick. However, it's not, they do recommend that you don't drink it. Uh, it's not, it's just filled with all sorts of salts and bromides and different substances and all, not good stuff. Um, uh, so, uh, and still today, there is I mean, several earthquakes down the Jordan Valley, and, uh, and in the past, there is definite evidence of massive geological uh, activity. And what's the interesting, I mean, we travelled down the Jordan Valley in a coach, and you can smell the sulphur all coming in through the air conditioning on the coach. Um, you know, you think, well, this is really, you know, we're, we go down to hell today. Actually, it's very nice, it's lovely, it's very... Very fascinating place to visit. Uh, now, I'm thinking to myself, was that me? I don't think that was me. I, I think I've got better feet than that, but... <laughs> it could be, it could be. Uh, but I don't remember that. And whoever it is, they're reading an Israeli paper. It's a bit of an iconic picture that I probably downloaded online because, it, because of the, the salt sea. There you see the, the, the residue all around it of the salts that are sort of, you know, come from the evaporation of the water. On a larger scale, um, you'll see that red line that, that, that stretches down. It's part of the great African Rift Valley. You'll know in Africa, um, you know, they've got flamingos that are all pink because of the chemicals and that that are in the valley and so on. Well, this is a continuation. That red line there, um, I think that shows up pretty clear, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's like a, a huge rent uh, 
in the Earth. So it's not surprising, it is one of the most geological uh, places on the Earth. If you're going to disobey God, try not to do it on a major fault line. I think that's a tip that you get, to, you get from tonight. Okay, now the original setting, however, and I mean, that's a good picture because it shows it beautiful and green in among the hills round about. According to the Bible, in Genesis 13 and verse 10, the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, towards Zoar. So the whole way down, originally, it was not like that. So one has to assume, Josephus, you remember that we heard last week, it called it a most happy land uh, in the beginning. And even today, there are some very interesting dynamics. I saw a program on television on the, on the Jordan Valley in this particular area, and they said that if you can get water, you know, fresh water down there, you can grow anything down there, and it grows phenomenally. Um, there may be a number of reasons for that. First of all, it's a, because it's lower, there's more weight of air on it, there's more CO2, and actually, in spite of what the publicity tells you, CO2 is very good for green plants. The earth actually is greener now than it used to be because of all the CO2 that we've got in the air. So every cloud has a silver lining, doesn't it? And of course, in the Jordan Valley, because there's such a high availability of CO2, plants love it. So if they can get water to it, then that's great. It's a lush growing area. It's also protected from harmful rays. They say that you can't get sunburn in the Dead Sea. That's handy. Don't need any, um, you know, sunscreen because there's that much thicker air. You know, there's a, there's a thousand foot more air above you. So the sun is filtered out before it gets you. That's interesting. If you've got a very fair skin, don't trust me on that, will you, just in case. But, uh, but I think that's true. Uh, but got, so in the beginning, the water must have had an outlet to the uh, Red Sea. And I've got a picture there, which I, a contour picture, which I think is interesting. It sh you can see at the bottom, that's the Red Sea there. Um, the Gulf of Aqaba, that's one half of the Red Sea, and the, and the cleft, the rift, goes right the way down. I mean, the Red Sea, at that point, is about 5,000 foot deep, so it's, it's pretty deep uh, down there. So that's obviously, I guess, as it was, but somehow the land has lifted up, you know, south of the Dead Sea, and, and then the, the land where the Dead Sea is has gone down. So it's kind of, it's blocked off. It's blocked the exit for it uh, into the water. So originally, it was better than that. What about the cities themselves? Where are they? There's very little geographical reference. Uh, some say that the cities were under where the Dead Sea now is. Some say they're clustered down in the, um, right in the southern end of the Dead Sea. Um, but uh, there is one reference in Genesis 10, 19, which talks about the land of Canaan and where it was. And it's interesting, the geographical reference points that it gives. Um, Sidon, you know, the, the borders of Canaan reach from Sidon, which is up there, down as far as um, Gerar, which is down here somewhere there, um, as far as Gaza, and then towards Sodom, and Gomorrah, and Admar, and Zeboim, right up to, La that says Laish, or Laisha, it became, the, it became the city of Dan. So if you, if you draw that, if I put some stars in where they are, so you've got that one there, you've got that one there, that one there, and then you've got, if you assume, it sounds like they were in a line running up. If you, if you take the line through, so say you said sort of there, 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 
I mean, I half know that they're rare anyway, that's why I'm putting them there. <laughs> but it does make sense then, you see, you can join that up and go like that, and you've got the whole land of Canaan outlined according to that verse, and that would definitely make sense. If they were all down in the south of the, of the, of the Dead Sea, it doesn't make sense. And they're significant big cities. They wouldn't have all been on top of one another. They would have been at least separated, but they could have significant cities because it was such a rich land. They were large cities then that were there. The other reference, the only other geographic... The, I'm sorry this is so nerdy. Bear with me. This is a passage in 1 Samuel 13 where it talks about Saul's army confronting uh, uh, the Philistines and it talks about how they, you know, they, they go in, all, in three directions. And you'll see that they've, they, uh, they, they were at Michmash, that's Saul's army, and uh, no, Saul's army is at Gibeah, uh, the Philistines were at Michmash and they sent their army out in three directions. Uh, one towards Beth Horon, one towards Ophrah, and the other one towards Zeboim, um, which is there towards the east. Uh, which doesn't give a lot, but it does imply that probably, if you see, there's the Dead Sea there. That's the top of the Dead Sea. So Zeboim is highly likely somewhere around that area in the Jordan Valley. Above, so, you know, they'd have gone there. And uh, so that's what I've marked in there. Um, that's a rough uh, reckoning of where these, the, the five cities of the plain were, four of which were judged, one of which, Zoar, in the bottom, as far as we know, escaped. And uh, Josephus, that we read about last week, he said there are still reminders of that divine fire and the traces of the cities are still to be seen. So he certainly... Uh, knew about them in around about, you know, Jesus, Jesus' time. They were still visible at that time. Uh, here's an aerial photo of the southern part uh, of the Dead Sea, and you'll see that some arrows have been put there for Zoar, Sodom and Gomorrah, and then there's the northern part for Admar and Zeboim. That's the northern part of the sea. Does that all make sense? So roughly? Good, okay. I'll, I'll put you some circles around. Each of those places has got a kind of pale looking, you see that pale shadow there where I'm putting that? The Gomorrah looks like it was um, on two sides of the Dead Sea. There's a lot of it there and some there. So Gomorrah, if, if anything, looks like the largest by far of the cities. That's the one that I've been in. Um, Admar and Zeboim I've seen, but I've not been in them, but they were there to the north. But they've all got that creamy deposit. And, when we, I mean, when I didn't know anything about this, the first time I went to the Holy Land and we drove down the, the road, down the Jordan Valley, I, I looked over at these creamy white deposits. I thought, what are they? And, uh, and I, I, when I looked it up, it said they were natural gypsum deposits. So I thought, oh, okay, natural gypsum. But it's very interesting where they are. They're in specific places. They're not generally, they're just in these specific places. These are, I believe, the remains of the cities. They are unique features in this part of the Jordan Valley. And anybody that goes there, when we, the last time we visited um, Israel, we, went, we were going up to Masada. That's the cable car that goes up to Masada, which is really the, the reason why you're there. And, uh, and you'll see the bottom there of the, of the hill. Can you see that? That creamy, that creamy white deposit. It, they look sort of weird, like they don't fit. Uh, you know, what actually produced those things there. Um, so we, that's one of our photos from our time when we were in Israel. So creamy white deposits then. And once I started to um, 
investigate this. The, the question comes to mind, and you might find that yourself, well, why has nobody spotted this? You know, why? How come, how come after all these years? Thousands of years. Well, I mean, it looks like Josephus knew where they were, but certainly in modern times, nobody. And I have to say, the reason probably is because archaeology has become hugely biased against the Bible. Almost any ancient document is considered valid and worth quoting, but not the Bible. The Bible is considered that it's got a spiritual purpose and therefore it's biased and therefore it's not to be trusted. And that has settled into archaeologists and of course that's fitted in with a general growing atheism in our society and in the scientific field. So experts claim that it is simply a natural gypsum deposit. End of story. Anybody know what gypsum's made of? Oh yes, I hear you say. No, I don't. Well, gypsum is calcium sulfate, uh, basically, and, uh, and when I sort of learned that, I thought, well, that's very interesting, and so we'll have a look at that. Nobody actually goes there to check it out. It's really hot there. I mean, I've got some video of people that were actually walking there, and they're sort of mopping their brow and <laughs> sweltering in the heat, and of course, the enemy is a deceiver. The last thing he wants people to do is to believe God's word. If people actually knew what God's word said and what there is to support it, I mean, they would either be in crisis or they'd have to get saved. You know, truth to tell. I mean, we are stubborn, admittedly, but, uh, but the enemy has, has got willing people to listen and to be deceived. Okay, there's another picture from Masada. I mean, that is a sight to see, I have to say. That was where Herod built his summer palace, and it's amazing. Down on terraces, you can see some of the terraces down there. But you see, again, in the background there, uh, the creamy deposits of that part of Gomorrah, and then over there in the distance, in the middle, the rest of the Gomorrah that we saw in the aerial picture. Now we're going to look at an analysis, or try and get a bit close up on the remains of the cities as we have them. Uh, there's quite a lot of that sort of stuff. It's very interesting. I mean, uh, I'm reliably told that that is evidence of great heat, that it has somehow contorted uh, the remains and, and, uh, and, and, and they said ionised them. I don't actually know quite what that means, so, but I'll repeat it to you. So they are ionised remains. The heat is contorted. So they were obviously in layers, and as the, as the, as the heat continued, they, they bent up. It, it's, it's estimated from some of the things that they found burnt up there that you could have had uh, temperatures of several thousand degrees uh, at full go it, because of the, uh, the, the funnel effect of, you know, of a firestorm. I mean, they found that in Australia, didn't they? You know, when the forests forest were on fire, massive heat can generate. If you got fed by oxygen, you get massive uh, hot. And it looks as if that's what happened here. So the contortion then is due to great heat. It's, now this, I can definitely testify, that the Bible says in 2 Peter 2 that, it, that, that Sodom and Gomorrah were burnt to ash, and that is actually literally what it is. It is ash, and it's very weird. You know, you go to these forms, and you can tap them, and they've got a kind of hollow feel. I can't actually, I can't communicate it to you, but it's a, it's a bit like when you, if you burn a book, and it smoulders and smoulders and smoulders, and, and, and it, the fire goes out, and, you, and you've still got the shape of the book there, but it's all got turned to ash. That's exactly what it's like, and they're kind of, they feel hollow, but it's heavy ash. It's not light ash, which is probably why it's lasted as long as it has, although it has been very eroded, obviously, in 4,000 years. Um, when, you, when you touch it like that, it just crumbles in your hands. It's, it, it's like talcum powder. So, you know, if, if, it, if they had more rain, these wouldn't be here. 
That's true to say. It's very dry. I mean, they get about one rain event a, a year. And, uh, and they were saying to me that, 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 that some of the guys that went there, they got there just after a rainstorm one, one particular year and big chunks had fallen off. So I guess that's probably what happens. The rain sort of undermines it, but it's a very slow process. So there's, a, there's, a, there's undoubtedly quite a lot of erosion going on, but it's amazing what is left. Incredible, really, how much longer it will be. But predominantly, the, the residue is gypsum. Now, here's a bit of chemistry. Uh, for those that don't know, uh, limestone is ca calcium carbonate. Like kind of chalk sort of stuff, you know, different form of it. Um, and, uh, and if they built the city with limestone blocks, which is highly likely, we, there, is a, there is a sense that limestone building technology may well have come uh, from Sodom and Gomorrah, and it was Joseph that imported it into Egypt. But we'll look at that next week, if you can manage another nerdy week with us. Uh, but, uh, but calcium carbonate, limestone rock, if it's bombarded with hot sulfur, then you get a chemical reaction and it turns to gypsum, which is calcium sulfate. You see, you know, oxygen feeds it and so you get a transfer. So when I, when I found that out, I thought, that's, that's amazing. That's answered my question. So I thought, how could it be a gypsum deposit if it's the ruins of a thing, an ash? Well, it's actually both. And it's actually interlayered with, with, with calcium carbonate and calcium sulfate all layered in um, uh, through the whole structure. Now, what about the shapes of the buildings? Well, you have to say these could be a natural remains. You know, there are certain things about them that look like they could be just weird natural remains. But the more you go through them, I mean, that one, what does that look like to you? I mean, they're, they're, they're sort of weird, aren't they? They're cut through with roadways and valleys, and it looks like at one point a riverbed that ran all the way through them. There's another view pretty similar to the last view um, of the remains. I say there's some, there's some weathering, some erosion, bound to be after 4,000 years. But nonetheless, it's amazing how many times you find uh, right angle corners and turrets and all sorts of things. So we'll look at a few of them. There's one there. You can see uh, up there in the background a, a quite a high thing. That's probably a ziggurat. There are quite a number of those around you know, ceremonial, you remember the Babel, they built ziggurats, that's what they did in those days, they all built ziggurats and stuff like that. There's another view there, that looks like that's going up a roadway, and you see all the sort of the fall, fall out from them. So around all of the things, there are these, if you walk in them, it's just soft ash. It's crumbled from the buildings above them and, and tumbled down into the, uh, into the roadways. That one, I think, is, that, that to me, looks like a river. Did you see my river there? And, um, but again, you, you look at those with all the sort of, you know, the turrets and the different um, uh, things and the different heights and so on of the buildings around about. So there's, there's something, it's pretty weird there, it, it seems to me. That stands all on its own, right near one of the, what would have been the entrance ways to it. And the guys that, that looked at it said, it's, it's really like a sphinx. It's about 30 foot long. And, and high like that. And they reckon that there were sphinxes, plonks, you know, like the one at the, on the, the pyramids, all the way around in the ancient world. Uh, that one, again, is quite a characterful um, thing, and others in the background, and so on and so on. Um, uh, that's, that's another ziggurat, and again, that's completely uh, angled, you know, like a square, 
uh, tower, then tapering up towards the top, rather in the way of uh, ziggurat there. There's another one. That's a slightly different shape. That's more rectangular. They're turrets. Um, those turrets, they found some that had got entryways in, but they didn't dare go in them because, of course, it, it was it's really a crumbly old ash thing. You could get buried alive. Well, you'd be dead then, wouldn't you? But um, you could get buried quite easily within the thing. So they didn't actually go in, but they could. You could. They got a lot of these arched doorways all over. There's another one there, um, and they've crumbled. You know, admittedly, so they're not as they once were. Those I found really interesting because you could see um, the rectangular shapes up there. In fact, I, I think uh, they look like. That's even better there. You see up there, those rectangular look like the remains of windows that were there. And again, they're not natural. You don't get, you know, straight rectangles normally in a natural formation. And uh, uh, numbers of, of rampart-like things. Look at that there. Um, and there's two levels of them. And a lot of ancient fortifications were built like that, with a first set and then another set behind the first set that were higher still. So these were, these were big cities if these remains are anything to go by. There's another picture. And you can see the surrounding mountains at the back there. Uh, they're a different colour completely, and then all of this stuff here in the foreground. We did actually walk through quite a lot of it uh, when we were there, though we were a bit limited. I mean, our Israeli guide knew nothing of it. And uh, we managed to dig a sulphur ball out and set fire to it. And uh, they, they do burn. You know, that was really weird. And uh, one of my family, uh, I won't say who, because it might go out online and then who knows, they might get arrested. Uh, but, but actually, I don't think there's any reason why you can't. He took a few samples home, so he got a whole box of, of sulfur balls at home. And I have to say, Debbie's got one, but she didn't pick it out herself. I hasten to add, somebody gave it to her from our party there. But I mean, it was so interesting. You could walk into that thing and you could find them everywhere. Millions of them, peppered through. You know, to just go in, we had, well, I don't know, 20 minutes or so, I think, to wander through. And Debbie's got some photos at the back on a, on a little uh, photo album from when we were in Israel, just to prove that we were there. It, more or less the pictures that you got here, but they are our pictures that she took uh, with her own camera. There's a, a final one. I mean, that one at the top again is that one there, but you, to me, that, that doesn't, you know, with all the sort of the, 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 uh, the thingamabobs around the side there, um, it, it's not, it doesn't look natural to me. There's Zohar at the bottom. I don't know why they included that on there, but you see Zohar doesn't have the same thing. It's obviously, there was something there and it's gone and it's crumbled, but it's not the same because God didn't judge that. <coughs> okay. Now all that you would say, well, okay, maybe, maybe. For me, this is the thing that clinches it. The, the sulfur balls that are everywhere in it. And there's no, that I've come across, no explanation for them uh, whatsoever. They are scattered around on the ground. They're peppered into bits of rock. I mean, that's a, that was a bit of rock that apparently came down after a shower of rain. And you can see uh, on it, you can see the different, the brown marks um, all peppered across it. They're, I mean, they are literally everywhere when you break them open. And uh, in a lot of them, you've got a little sulfur ball still there. Some of them, the sulfur ball's completely gone and it's all black, but it looks like the sulfur ball has fallen into the, into the ash 
burning, has burned a charred circle around itself, but where there was some left, it extinguished itself because there was no oxygen for it, so it went out. So these, these uh, sulfur balls are, are unique. As far as I know, it has never been found anywhere else in the world. They are very pure. They've done an analysis of it, and they are 98% pure sulfur. Uh, it's a powdery form, not crystalline, yellow like normally. And it, it's, it's what happens when you cook it in great heat. In fact, I was thinking about it, the nearest uh, analogy I can think of is charcoal. Now, you know, when they make charcoal, um, they, they set fire to a load of wood and then they completely cover it with turf or whatever to block out any oxygen so it uses up the existing oxygen and then the, the wood just cooks. And it turns into practically pure carbon. The same it looks like has happened to these sulfur balls. They've actually turned, they've purified in the huge heat as they've been cooking in the heat there. There's one sticking in the side. That was where we mostly found them. We just went up to the edges of some of the forms and, and dug them out um, and uh, brought home our little collection. Oh, and there it says it. Uh, you see, in the, the white monoclinic form. I don't know what that means, but there you go. That's it. That's what it looks like having been cooked. And you can see yellow sulfur, which is the normal sulfur that you get, uh, that naturally occurs everywhere else in the world. Okay, so those are the remnants. Well, weigh it up. You know, for me, I, I, having been there, I'm totally convinced. The positioning of them, the places where they are, the, the calcium sulfate, the gypsum, the consistency of it, the sulfur balls written through it, it seems to me these are the cities of the plane. So, lastly, the mercy of... Uh, fourthly, sorry, not lastly. And we're looking in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 23 to 33. This is just before this happened, when you remember Abraham has an appointment with God. And, uh, and Abraham approached him. Uh, this, is, this is the Lord, because uh, the, the Lord is, walking, is on his way down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous? Far be it from you to do such a thing. It's a bit cheeky, isn't it? To kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will, you not, will not the judge of all the earth do right? You've probably heard that saying before tend to forget that that was Abraham as he was interceding with God for Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Well, that's pretty good. Because God is offended by it, there's no doubt about it. And then Abraham spoke up again and he said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes... What if the number, not a very good turn of phrase in the light of what was to happen, was it really? There you go. Uh, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? And God can do mathematics. So God says, if I find 45 there, I will not destroy it. And once again, he spoke to him, what if, I, if only 40 are found there? And he said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. 
And then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30? <laughs> Abraham is really pushing it. <laughs> and he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? And he said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of 10, there's only 10 people, 10 good people. That's just Lot and his family and a couple of others, really. If I can find that, I will actually spare the whole city. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. That's interesting, isn't it? For the sake of just 10 people, he would, God, God does not like... I mean, there, there is a passage in Ezekiel where God says to the, to the, to the children of Israel, why, why will you die, O children of Israel? I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Why, would, why do you keep doing it? Why are you so stubborn? Why, why do you keep fighting me? <laughs> Almost, as a heart cry of God. And that is, unfortunately, that is our track record. So God would have spared the whole city for 10 people. When it comes to actually taking them out, um, the, the two men said to Lot, do you have anybody else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anywhere else in the city who belongs to you? So even at that point, God is saying, you know, if, you, if, it's, you know, if there's anybody, if you've got a neighbour, anybody that will listen and will heed and come with you, will be saved. Literally. It was a question of, of, of listening to God, obeying him, and getting out of it. And you'll be saved. So even when, when they stand on the edge of judgment, God is still seeking to save any that he can. With Lot's family, they are humming and hawing. I mean, it, I can just imagine the angels holding this whole stuff back. Um, and uh, with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away when the city is punished. Um, and so on and so on. And, and when, he, when he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters, and he led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. So for me, that, I thought that was important to make one specific point, because people say, well, why does God do these things? Uh, God is God. God is righteous. God loves to show mercy, but God ultimately is God. And if I say, I'm going to do it my way, and God, I expect you to bend around my will, it will not happen. See what I'm saying? It can't happen. If God starts bending his will in order to accommodate, where would it stop? What would happen to the universe? The whole universe stands on the perfect, holy, righteous will of God who keeps us all alive day by day. He will not change, he cannot change. He will show mercy, but ultimately, if I say, I will do it my way, there's no other way, then I will pay. I mean, that, you know, what can I say? So there is great mercy in God, and that, that still goes out today. God, and I mean, we're getting loads of stories of people that were right on, the, right on the edge, and God has reached out to them and touched them, and changed their lives, and born them again, made them new. I mean, how good's that? So the mercy of God really comes through here. Okay, last point, uh, the lessons of Sodom. There's quite a lot here. 
Well, a couple of sheets of them anyway, so we'll, we'll work our way through. How are we doing? Oh, we're good, aren't we? Got loads of time. <laughs> well, a bit. Okay, lessons of time. Um, number one, sex is important to God because he created it. That is so important to recognise that. There is nothing in the world more designery than sex. That is, you could not evolve that. Because until you've got a man and a woman and it works, you did, you've got nothing. You've got nothing to evolve. You need the whole system totally in place. And it is amazing. And God created it and designs it and cares about it. And that certainly comes through in this thing here. God's plan for sex, it has to be said, is one man, one woman, for life, living faithfully. Together. That's God's plan. Now, we are so far away from that, generally, in our society and culture as a whole, it's really hard almost to know where to start. But that is the plan. And where that works, <clears throat> then we find that, that men and women live in a, in a degree of emotional... Because when you, when you uh, engage in sex, you open yourselves, become vulnerable to one another in a way that is unique. And God knows that. So you need to, that needs to happen in a secure environment. Where that happens in an insecure environment, where there is kind of, you know, marriages breaking and moulding and, you know, moving on from one to the other to the other to the other, it damages us. It damages our children, it damages our families. You know, we, we often have things about mental illness now. We wonder why so many young people are mentally ill. I can tell you why they are. Because we're living wrong. You know, we've, and we've marked it up particularly in the sex department. We are very vulnerable in sex. We're very easily tempted. We're very easily run astray. And our society has got a thousand different ways that we can run astray. But if we, if we live as God tells us to live, it provides emotional security for us. It provides a stable environment for our offspring. It provides balance in society. Because men and women balance one another. Have you noticed that? You know, if you get a whole load of blokes together like a football crowd, um, or a load of terrorists for that matter, you know, they're, they're unbalanced. We need women. God created the human race so that right the way through, in a most intimate relationship, male and female would balance one another. If you lose that, it has untold consequences, and there is evidence here that Sodom and Gomorrah were reaping that. The whole society, it seems to me, was unbalanced. So here's Lot who brings out his daughters and says, oh, come out of my daughters. I mean, what do those girls think? I mean, I'm presuming they knew. Well, I mean, we know that the story of Lot and his daughters is not that bright, actually, as things go on, and it's hardly surprising. But it gives an, an indication of he, who was meant to, he was a righteous man, how he had been corrupted within the culture. And uh, people often think, if you live in a, in a gay society, it would be okay for women. No, this wasn't okay for women. You know, I would imagine that lots of the people there were actually probably bisexual. They probably have sex with practically anything that they could. You know what I mean? If sex can get so rampant and, and so abusive that in the end, it destroys human personality. <clears throat> Sexual sin, therefore, I believe the testimony of Sodom is, destroys people, individuals, and ultimately, 
societies. Even where God doesn't move so drastically in judgment, it has a degenerative effect on human society and well-being. And we may well discover the truth of that to our cost in the coming years. The Bible therefore warns against it. It's in the Ten Commandments, it's in God's insights as people, all the way through. Jesus repeats it in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul repeats it. We really need to try and get that straight. So those of us that would seek to walk before God, we need to sort out our sexual lives. If we've got sin in our lives, we need to repent of it, ask God to be... Because God is merciful. He knows what we're like. Uh, but we need to walk straight before him. Okay. There is a, um, a, a passage in Ezekiel which I think is an interesting reflection on the society of Sodom at this time. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. Because you may think, well, what were all the women doing in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, the blokes were all gathering out and trying to have sex with angels. What were the women doing? Well, I think Ezekiel gives a bit of an answer to that. She, she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. So this is emphasised on the women in Sodom. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. We don't know what that was. I wouldn't even like to think about it. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. So there is an indication that here is a society that is broken at every level. There is violence and evil and wickedness and lust rampant in the streets. And of course, the angels found that and understood what was happening. Okay. What about the particular sin of Sodom then? I can't really speak on this without talking about a little about homosexuality. Homosexuality just means same sex. We've often modernised that now and called people same sex attractive, but that's all homosexuality means. It comes from the Greek word homo, which means the same. Hetero means different. So heterosexuals are people that like somebody from a different sex. Well, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to teach you Greek, but uh, just so that you've got your terminology right. Homosexuality is not a new thing. It recurs through history, often to the detriment of the societies where it was. What is the cause of it? Well, they are complex, it has to be said. Um, in, the, in the early days of the gay movement, before it was, um, uh, you know, when it was legal but tolerated, not much more, not like now, um, it was said really that, the, that they'd done some research and that the causes were genetic. You were, you were born with it, you couldn't help it. And obviously there were a couple of implications to that. Number one, if you were born with it, then obviously it's not your fault. So you can't be blamed for it, so it's not sinful. You know, it's just, it's just the way I am. Secondly, it also means that there's a, there's a ceiling on how many people there are. So, you know, it was often said the maximum number of people that would have that kind of orientation would be quite limited, maybe down to one or two or three or maximum 10%, not that many people anyway. And that was generally the thing. That was, now, actually, there was not a lot of scientific um, basis for this recommendation to the government, but the government took it on. And I remember writing to the Home Secretary something over 20 years ago now, and I said to him, Your whole, the whole of government, he didn't answer me, well, except to give a kind of platitude, you know. Um, but I said, the whole of government policy is based on the premise that this is a genetically caused condition, and therefore we ought to act accordingly, and therefore, you know, people can't help it, etc., etc., etc. But what if you're wrong? What if there are other causes, more complex causes that cause it? And Sodom and Gomorrah certainly does indicate that. I mean, if even allowing for a bit of exaggeration, it says all the men of the city, young and old, surrounded the house. 
So there was a pretty mass movement that was going on there that, that ran right the way through at least the major part of the men in the town. So I think you have to say that social contagion is a second factor in it. We can catch stuff from other people. When everybody else is doing it, we think, well, maybe I could do that. And uh, there's certainly evidence of that when we see what's running through schools now where, where there's all kinds of, ge of, of gender fluidity and uncertainty about whether I'm a boy or a girl. I mean, I can't even begin to remember anything like that when I was young. You know, and it, people say, well, it was all going under the surface. No, it wasn't. People never even thought like that. So something is contagious and it's running through society and we're catching it from the media and from anything else and from the, from the government affirmation and so on and so on. It may also be caused by a general permissiveness. You know, if heterosexual activity passes a certain level, people start moving towards more and more novelty and other things, and that may well be a factor. I mean, I sometimes wonder if the, if the so-called heyday of the 60s, where it was free love and everything else, hasn't actually spawned a generation of people that were very liberal about sex, so they didn't care to teach their children about living purely and so on and so on, so the children went with whoever they would, and now, you know, we get the present situation that we're in. So there's kind of, re re it may be that that's part of it. Certainly it seems that that was true from some of the indications we get from Romans chapter 1, that there was that kind of thing happened before it went more um, uh, specifically homosexual. Uh, you have to say also there may well be a spiritual rebellion at the heart of it. You can't understand what's happening here in Sodom and Gomorrah without a sense of the same, the same kind of spiritual rebellion that was there in, in the Tower of Babel, uh, almost an anger of God, a desire to shake my fist at God. Um, what, who is God that he thinks he can tell me what to do? And that is, that is, the, modern, that is the modern atmosphere by and large. Uh, people, well, who is God think he is? <laughs> you have to say, well, who do I think I am at the end of the day? But, so a spiritual rebellion, I think, uh, may also be at the root of it. And that may be why it, become, it could become highly militant. Um, and, and to some extent that is happening. I mean, Franklin Graham, I think, has been trying to get into this country to take a, um, a, a crusade. Um, and, uh, and he's fine that the, L, the LGBT community are getting the doors closed to him everywhere. Um, I don't know whether he's managed it yet. Billy Graham came to this land to preach the gospel and although not, you know, many people actually were saved, but certainly nobody would ever have thought of stopping him coming. Uh, Franklin Graham apparently said something about 20 years ago that upset uh, the gay community and they've, they've, they're doing, so they are now highly militant. They are quite a minority. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if this doesn't get taken off YouTube or media or whatever, so be it. I have to, I have to say, the truth as it is. Uh, if it does, uh, you'll be glad you came tonight because you might not ever get it again. Okay, good. So the lessons of Sodom, then there's quite a lot of lessons. As it was, and Jesus said, as it was in the days of Lot, people were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building. But the day that Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven, destroyed them all. This is Jesus speaking. This is gentle Jesus speaking. It will be just like this on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So if your view of Jesus is that he wouldn't hurt a fly, I suggest you update it according to the Word of God. He will come like a burning fire. He will come as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that day may not be so far away. Amen! 
Good, lovely. Bless you. Now then, if you, if you want to follow up on any of these issues, then you could look at your way up. Uh, series two and number one, what went wrong, where I try to deal a bit more fully with it, but there will be a little bit of overlap and so on. Bless you all. Thank you for listening. Amen. I'm going to just pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're the living God, that you're full of compassion and mercy and love, particularly for the sons of man and women that you created and brought forth. You love us. You desire life for us. But I thank you, Father, you are also holy and majestic and righteous and just. And I pray, Lord, that in these days, men would not shake their fist at heaven, but would hear your voice and listen to what you say, because we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We do have one question, so that's great. There was one other thought that I had that I, I thought I'd, I'd just add in because we were just talking there. It is thought that the whole, uh, I mentioned, didn't I, that the whole basin of the Dead Sea is called a, a pull-apart pull apart basin, and they think it's all sunk down as one, you know, quite a large, like gone down like a lift. And I certainly remember hearing years ago one geologists reckoning that as that happened, the, the, the lava and stuff that was underneath it squirted up the outsides of it and rained down from that. And so that might have been a naturalistic way that God did it. Otherwise, I mean, we don't know. God could have just sent sulfur from heaven. But my sense is probably uh, it was connected with the fact that that is such a geologically active place. And that may have been one way that it happened. Okay, so I just thought I'd add that little bit in. Uh, the question that we've got, how come scientists claim they found people frozen for 100,000 years ago if we've only been here for about 6,000 years, etc., etc.? I mean, that's a question that you could ask in loads of different forms, and it's all the question of chronology. And, uh, I mean, uh, we've been, all of us, taught that everything has been going for millions of years. The dinosaurs, I think, were 500 million years before the first people came, and people have been on the Earth already for several millions of years. I've just read a book on fossils, and it indicates that actually the dating for that is hugely debatable. You know, they keep changing it. They are, if, if they get several dates, um, they tend to take the longest date. They generally only date... Uh, fossils and things like that according to the strata that they're in and that they assume then that that strata is a certain age because they've already worked it out. So it's very circular the whole dating process but it's always given with such certainty and we're told it from so young that we're practically brainwashed into it. If you start looking at it you know again you find that it's not nearly so certain. The, the, the most, um, the, the biggest source of dating is radiometric dating. Um, so you've got carbon dating, you know, carbon 14 decays into carbon 12, et cetera, et cetera, but it, it decays quite quickly. And so the longest that it could decay for is reckoned to be 100,000 years. So that would be your absolute max. You'd have no carbon 14 left after 100,000 years. So that can't give you millions of year dates at all. They use other dating processes, which are a bit technical. I won't kind of go into them at length, but all of them have the problem that they are process dates. In other words, you observe a process, you extrapolate it, you work out how long it would have taken. And I've often used the example of a tap dripping in a bath. 
um, which I find quite helpful. If you were to uh, get a tap dripping in a bath and you could measure the rate of drip and you could measure how much water was in the bath, you could work out how long the tap's been dripping. But what you don't know is how much water was already in the bath before the tap started dripping. You don't know that it's been dripping at the same speed. You don't know whether some has evaporated away or somebody came along and poured a bucket in you know, at some point in the past. And the longer the period of time, the harder it is to actually uh, get an accurate assessment. So a lot of dating is based on that kind of ad hoc way and is much more influenced by people's presuppositions. We tend to think everything's old and so we look for dates that actually fit that and so on and so on. On the other hand, there are loads of dates <coughs> that are much, you know, loads of processes that yield much shorter dates. And you remember in Noah's Ark, we were talking about population growth, how <coughs> that could only have been growing for a certain amount of time. Uh, if we look at the histories of civilizations, they all appear actually only a few thousand years ago, as if the human race was doing nothing at all uh, apart from, you know, building fires and walking around with a club as a caveman for hundreds of millions of years before they finally started civilization. But actually, the Bible's account actually is much more accurate. Now, when you get to this particular one, people frozen. I mean, I don't know that particular case. I would think probably they would use carbon dating for that. And they generally get lower dates than 100,000. I would think, but we'd have to look at the specific one. But what I do as a matter of course, I always say, what are the presuppositions? What kind of information do they start with? What is the evidence? How have they measured that evidence? How reliable is it? And so on and so on. And often find, and others cleverer than I, find that it's, there's loads of assumptions that lie behind it. And often we simply see what we want to see. In reality, it's very hard to tell how old a rock is. I've got a book at home called Rocks Are Not Clocks, um, which is a snappy title and basically says, you know, you can't automatically assume a rock is such and such an age. I mean, we wouldn't know a rock. And they did some measurements on Mount St. Helens of the volcanic stuff that came out of Mount St. Helens in the 80s and they, they to a laboratory that didn't know where it had come from and uh, they estimated it at 1.2 million years old, give or take, couple of hundred thousand years and of course it had come out of Mount St Helens in the 1980s. So it, the, whole, the whole thing, although it's said so scientifically, it's actually much less certain than we're led to believe. But loads of people totally buy into it and think it's scientific and don't question it. I mean, my, I think my overall counsel is question everything. You know, question what I'm saying, that's good. Um, and, uh, I mean, I don't really know that much, so you <laughs> find it hard to question me. Um, but question everything and check it out, because some people's whole eternal destiny is, is lost because they bought into a worldview that I believe is a lie. Did that help at all? Yes. Bless you. Good. Okay, everybody. Well, I think that... Is there any, any other spontaneous things that have just sort of stirred up in your minds while we've been talking? If not, go in peace. Oh, good. Oh, look. There's something else from over there as well, wasn't there? Yeah, that's good. Thanks, Pete. That was just a comment about coal. 
of how they've actually found that you can make coal. You don't need millions of years to make coal. If you've got the right temperature and pressure, it can be crushed and you can form coal in 20 minutes, you said, which is really pretty amazing. That you find the same with stalactites and stalagmites. You know, they will often say, well, start, you know, if you go down any kind of cave visit, they say, well, this took millions of years to form. But actually, they don't. And uh, they've had things that have sort of got stalactites pouring off them. And they're only, they're, you know, like an article. Um, and they've only been there a, a, a few years. So, so question it, really. I think it's the general comment. We have to question the ages that are given to us. And I mean, I could do a whole talk on that, but that'd have to be a whole separate talk on chronology. And interestingly, the Bible, I mean, loads of Christians tend to sort of compromise the Bible and say, well, it doesn't really matter. The Bible's not meant to be a scientific book, but the Bible is very definitely a chronological book. If it's nothing else, I mean, you read, the, you read it, it's nearly boring with all the ages and when they had their babies and who followed who. And, uh, you know, you can, you can actually, that's how you can work out a very accurate timeline, uh, the Bible. And it's interesting that the Chinese, uh, they put the, the, the beginning of their culture at 2300 BC, which is pretty much the date of the flood. And you can, you know, you can trace um, echoes in the histories of almost every major people of the flood, the Tower of Babel, all of these events indicating that they've come from a common source, a common heritage, and then spread out. You can always bend your story. That, that, that was the question about dinosaurs. The fact that um, although dinosaurs are supposed to have lived, what, is it 100 million years ago? I'm not exactly sure on the, on the date of it, but they found, you know, tissue that is still flexible, malleable, blood vessels and things like that in them. And of course, the person that found it is an evolutionist, so can't actually believe what she's discovered. And everybody else can't believe, but it's gradually becoming accepted. And so the answer is, goodness me, that tissue must have lasted much longer than we thought. But actually, we know it doesn't. You know, it's ludicrous. You can't, you know, um, organic tissue breaks down very rapidly once it's exposed to oxygen. And once a cell dies, you know, it, it just goes down. But of course, you just change the story and adapt it. And most people will just accept what they're told. I, I, we were talking during the, um, during the break. And I, I said to, um, I think, was it Rita? I think it was Rita. Um, the greatest gift that you can bring to your life is the gift of spiritual curiosity. Ask questions. I mean, curiosity generally is one of the key things of intelligence and, and most likely to give you a successful life because you're going to question and analyze and think about stuff instead of just blindly going along with the crowd. But that is particularly true for those of us that want to be Christians in the age that we're living in. Uh, is, is Challenge everything. Don't just believe just because you're told it. Question it. Weigh it up. That's the thing. With that, we'll close. Good night, everybody. God bless you.